That's some eerie music that's playing right there. <laughs> How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good. Hey, it's so glad to see all of you here. And good morning to those of you who are watching online. Thank you for joining us. I know some of you are on vacation right now and you're joining us. So it's wonderful that you can be a part of this. Please uh, like or leave a comment. Let us know that you're here or share this video on the live stream so that we can be sharing more of what God is doing among us as we, we journey through God's word and try to piece it all together. But before we do that, I, I want to probably point out an obvious statement that, that many of you have probably picked up on notice, and it's that, that we have what's occurring kind of like a baby boom here in our church, which is wonderful, right? Uh, there's apparently very fertile soil around here, or fertile drinking water, and it's, it's enjoyable because I'll be back here preaching, and I can see in the back of the room there'll be like a couple of mothers like nursing and soothing their kids, and we'll have kids run up and down the aisle. And some of them are shouting and screaming, and I just want to go ahead and say, that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, I, I love hearing that noise when I'm preaching. It feels like they're saying amen, as little kids, right? Um, and, and so the, the deep-rooted Baptist in me loves that, okay? Um, so I am not at all upset when you have kids here and that sort of deal. Uh, but I just want to say, you know what? It's so wonderful that God is bringing us this blessing, especially as we're about to move into a building, that we have so many new families that are starting up right now. Um, but we also have right now, we have a wonderful nursery staff, and I'm not saying this for like, hey, get your kids over there, but I'm just saying we have, for those of you who do want your kids back there, we have wonderful workers back there who, instead of being with us, they choose to serve. And so this morning, can we just, for a moment, just give appreciation to our nursery staff, and especially, you know, for what they know is coming with the, the influx of kids. So this is a wonderful deal. Like I said, I'm not saying get your kids there, because I love having your kids here, but I am saying let's, let's show appreciation for for those workers. Hey, when we open up the Bible, right from the beginning, the very first chapter, we see something really beautiful that God says about us. You open it up, and in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God talks about how he views us, and it talks about how we were created, that we were made in the image of God, which means that we are special compared to all of the rest of creation, that we were made with a purpose in mind, that God has this idea that we're going to be in relationship with him, that we're going to have community at the heart of who we are, and it's something beautiful. And, and so with that in mind of who God made us to be, it is hurtful, frustrating, and annoying, right, when someone uh, mistreats you, or says something that goes against that, that status of what God has made you to be, right? Like when someone does not take you seriously for the image of God that's in you, that, that's kind of hurtful, right? We've all kind of experienced that. Like maybe it's at a job and you're passed up for a promotion. Maybe it's a, an employer that you work for and they don't take your gifts seriously, they, that you feel like you're undermined by your employer all the time. Maybe it's in a relationship and you feel like you have sacrificed repeatedly for this relationship. Maybe that's how some of you parents or spouses feel, that you're the one who's always carrying the weight of this relationship. You sacrifice day in, day out, and no one seems to appreciate it. No one seems to take it seriously. You feel like you're all on your own. You feel like the image of God in you is being attacked and abused, that no one will see the real you and take you seriously. We all feel like that sometimes. And we are the only creatures on the planet that feel that way. Which, if you think about it, should enlighten us a little bit to maybe how God sometimes feels. 
that God sometimes feels like he's not taken very seriously. Well, the book of Joshua, where we're going to be at this morning, explores this theme when we look at the book overall. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along in our journey, I want to encourage you just to dive into Joshua chapter 1. And Joshua chapter 1, or Joshua in its entirety as a book, is a very fun book. It's a, a battle begins. It's a story about war and conquest. and you got all the sword fighting and things like that. It's a very fun book to read in one sense, but it's also very complicated. And it says some things about our culture, about our way of life, about how we view God and appreciate him and take him seriously that are, well, they're serious accusations. They're serious things to wrestle with. Now, the book of Joshua picks up right where we left off. So as I've been saying, we have been journeying through the scriptures, seeing how all of this is one big story of how God wants to, to set the world right again, how God wants to fix the world's problems, right? And so God, we've seen in the book of Genesis, starts off with talking to this guy named Abraham. He's like, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to put them in this promised land. They're going to be a blessing for the rest of the world. And through this family, I'm going to set this world right. And so we've been following this family that becomes known as the, the Israelites. And we've seen how God has rescued them from slavery and how God established this marriage covenant with them and how that he's asked them to be faithful to him as he's committed to being faithful to them. And we've seen God lead them through the wilderness for 40 years. And then we end last week with looking at Moses and his final words as they're about to enter into this promised land. And Moses dies, right? But before he dies, he instructs them. He's like, if this is all going to work, if God is going to lead us where he wants us to be, then we have to listen to him and love him. And then he dies. And the book of Joshua picks up right where we left off last week. So Joshua is the next guy in charge. So imagine just the feeling of following in Moses' footsteps, right? It's kind of intimidating. And so Joshua is given this responsibility right at the opening in chapter 1 where God says, okay, it's time to go into this promised land. It's filled with all of this enemy, all these people who are going to want to destroy you, and I want to lead you into battle. And Joshua, there's, he's an inexperienced youth. He's leading this young rebellious people. You can imagine he's probably feeling pretty terrified. This is the big task that God has for him. But God tells him, in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So right off the bat, God is kind of setting the theme of everything that's going to happen in the book of Joshua. He's like, I'm going to be the one who's going to bring about the victory. And your success is going to be tied to whether or not I'm in your life. But here's God saying, I'm going to be with you. Now, it's important that we clarify what that means, right? We oftentimes think the phrase, I will be with you, is this superficial uh, butterfly feelings, you know, the bubbles and the goosebumps and the chills down your spine of this feeling, God is with us. And, and there is that element, but in the ideas and the view of the Bible, the phrase, I will be with you, is God saying, I will make my purposes and plans work themselves out with you part of it. It's God saying that he's in relationship, that he is going to be working out this big mission, this big goal, and he's inviting them to be a part of it. And so he's telling Joshua, he's like, I'm going to work this out. We're going to get through this together. Now, you can imagine, like I said, Joshua probably feels uh, rather insecure, especially when God says that there's a responsibility on his end as part of this relationship. We can see Joshua's responsibilities in chapter 1, verse 7, 
where God tells them, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. So what did Moses command him? To listen to God and to love God. He says, be careful to do this. He says, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of the law, the first five books, right? It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So God is telling Moses or Joshua, he's like, I want to lead you into this impossible task, but you've got to be committed. You've got to be a disciple. You've got, this is the key to your success is your relationship tied to this purpose. Will you listen to God and will you love him, right? Now, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room, right? He's following in the footsteps of Moses. I don't know about you, but if you've ever fallen in the footsteps of someone who's a great leader, don't you always feel like everything you do is always going to be compared to them? Everyone's going to be like, oh, well, so-and-so used to do it like this way. Or, oh, man, the glory days of so-and-so. And here's, you're just trying to do your best that you can with what seems like an impossible task, right? That's how Joshua probably feels in this moment, which is why I think God says probably my favorite line in the entire book of Joshua. It's in verse 9. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. See, Joshua's confidence in what comes ahead is not going to be based on his qualifications or any merit he has. Like, there's nothing about Joshua that says, this is the general that we want. Nothing about him says that. But he has confidence that God is going to move his plans forward as he commits to listening to God and to loving God, right? And so he, he says, yes, I want to be part of this. And he gathers up the people and he tells them, hey, here's what God is saying. And, and the people, here's how they respond. In verse 16, this is all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Now, we should probably laugh at that, right? Like, these people have not obeyed Moses at all. Like, the two-week journey into the promised land took 40 years because they would not listen and obey Moses, right? So we can read this and be like, hmm. Poor Joshua, you're in for some trouble, right? Well, here's, it goes on. It says, only may Yahweh your God be with you as he was with Moses. Once again, you know, we can just make fun of these people. But they're kind of optimistic. They're like, yes, we're going to listen to you, Joshua. So Joshua encourages them. He's like, we're going to follow this law. We got to listen to God. We got to love God. And we're going to roll out. So they gather up. They come to the Jordan River. They cross over the Jordan River and things like that. And then Joshua sends in spies to the land to investigate it, okay? Just like Moses did long ago. And this time it goes really well. While before this was what caused the rift in the book of Numbers, at this moment all the spies come back and they have a glowing report. In fact, we even see that some of the people within the land of Canaan, like Rahab, come to follow and worship their God. And it's a wonderful occasion. And so they're like, yes, we can do this, but there's this problem. You see, the first place that God wants them to take is a place called Jericho. Jericho has never been conquered. It is this city with these really, really high walls and soldiers. It's never been taken in battle. And God's like, yep, that's the one. That undefeated champion over there, we're going to start with them. We're going to knock them down. And you can imagine probably the night before this happens. Joshua is probably up all night long just stressing about this. I mean, he's like, I'm leading a whole bunch of people who don't have weapons. They just have sticks and stones. And we're going to take this fortress? We're going to take this place? How in the world is this going to happen? 
So you can imagine in Joshua chapter 5, he's up all night with his generals. They're, they're scratching their brains. They're trying to find a solution. And then all of a sudden, an angel appears. And the, the language of the text makes it seem like, like Thor has just dropped in in a flash of lightning. Like That's how I picture this, like in the Avenger movies, where this angel appears and everyone draws weapons and they surround this angel and he's standing there with a shield and a sword. And, and Joshua carefully approaches this angel and, and he asks this angel in chapter five, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Like, that's a good question. You're like, are, are you about to kill all of us or are you here to help us? But here's what this angel says. He says, no, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. See, this angel, he's claiming, he's like, I'm not on your side and I'm not on the enemy's side. I'm on God's side. And in this single sentence, he's redefining their entire history. You see, up to this point, the Israelites always had this idea that God was on their side. But in this moment, we're having to look at scripture all with a, a different lens where God has rescued a family to himself to invite them to be on his side of things. And that's a little challenging. Think of it like this. When our nation was in a civil war, the North and the South were fighting each other. On both sides, there were churches. And on both sides was the argument that God was on our side. And you would hear that on in any church. And there would be cleverly arranged arguments that completely ignored true theology. That said, God is on our side. We cannot lose. And then Abraham Lincoln was credited during that time of stepping up and saying, we should not be asking whether or not God is on our side, but whether or not we are on God's side of things. And that's the distinction that's being brought up here, where it's a completely new way of looking at everything that God's done, of why has God rescued us? It's to invite us to be a part of his purposes, to be on his side of things. And so this angel is basically presenting to Joshua and says, God wants to fight and destroy evil, confront the evil that's before you. But the question is, will you be on his side? Or will you find yourself as part of his adversaries? Because if you're not on God's side, then, well, you're not on God's side. And that's not a good place to be, right? And so this is what's being proposed to Joshua. And Joshua does the good thing. He, he submits. He's like, I want to live a life that's on God's side, I'm not trying to force God on my side of things. I want to be living my life seeing his will be done. I want to live my life seeing his agenda be fulfilled in this world. And so this angel gives him a battle plan that comes from God. And it's a really strange battle plan. If you've ever heard the story of Jericho, the battle plan is we're going to walk around the city and just play worship music. And that will bring about the victory. And it seems really strange. Like, where's the siege engines? Where's the, the ladders to, to climb up the walls? Where's the batting ram to knock down the gate, right? Like, we expect something from the Lord of the Rings, right? And instead, we get a marching band performance. Not the battle strategy you think would work, right? But if you back it up and you look at this from 30,000 feet above, what you're seeing is here is the nation of Israel they're following the Ark of Covenant, the this thing that's supposed to be the throne seat of God, right? They're following it around the city, and they're basically proclaiming to the entire city within, we are the people who follow God. We're inviting you to come out and join us in following this God. It is an act of mercy upon God, of begging, will you come and, and follow God? 
And, and day after day, they come out in this worship service. And the last day they do it, they go around the city seven times. That's several, several miles of hiking. And it's basically them begging. God wants to give you life. God wants to give you freedom. He's inviting you to come, be a part of his side, be a part of his agenda, to follow him. But if you don't accept his life, then you're met with the consequences of the death of your sin that comes from it. And that's what happens. The city refuses to join in and worship of God, to follow him. And so it's like God steps on it as the city just crumbles to the ground. And this is not a victory for the Israelites. This is a showing that God is the one who's fighting all the battles in this book. This is not the Israelites did this or that. They're merely the pawns of God's bigger plan that's taken part. They're merely the spectators. And here was this God who was trying to show mercy and grace to his enemies. But when his enemies refuse to accept it, there comes a point where they're left to nothing more than to face the consequences. If you don't come to life, if you don't accept God's life and freedom, then you're only left with the death that your sin causes. And now, from this story, the Israelites were commanded to donate everything to God. All of it was God. This was all for God's glory. They weren't supposed to take anything for themselves. Well, well, that's where the problem comes in. You see, in chapter 7, right after this happens, when the rubble is still fresh, the dust is still in the air, we find that the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Because there's this guy named Achan. And Achan decides that he took some of the devoted things. And the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. Achan is sitting there thinking, God has all of this over here. He's not going to notice if I just take this tiny little pile for myself. If I just set aside this over here to, to establish my own future, my own future retirement, my own inheritance for my kids, that, oh, I could get this and that. If I could just, I just take this little bit right for myself. That's what Achan is doing. And he thinks God won't notice. God won't care. God's got all this other stuff over here. He won't care if I just take this. But here's the thing. This moment angers God. And you find that this has a dire consequence on the rest of the people of God because they decide, hey, we're going to go up and we're going to attack this other settlement over here. It's this tiny little place. It has no fortified walls. It's much smaller than Jericho. They have no army. And the Israelites are thinking, this is going to be easy. We can go take out these guys. Well, they get the tar whooped out of them and they come crying to their mommies and they're like, this is terrible. And Josh was in tears. He's like, God, I don't understand. You brought us here. You promised the success. You promised saying we're following you. And we hit this roadblock of this enemy that should have never been a, a problem and they've defeated us. And so Josh was in tears about this. And so God tells them in chapter seven, verse 10, God tells Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. It says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. This one man's sin has cost them so much. And that seems a little extreme for us, right? We're thinking, if this one man has done a problem, he alone should be punished, not everybody else. But yes, while he is responsible, oftentimes when we make mistakes, though we might be responsible, 
the consequences are felt by others. So if you're a parent, for instance, and, and you live your life all about acquiring more stuff, then it will have a negative effect on your children and your family. All, we all see this. If you're a parent or if you're a spouse, the things you do that you're like, this is, I'm only going to be the one responsible for this. This will only affect me. It never does. It affects the rest of the community. And this is what God is saying. Yes, Achan, you've messed up, but look, this is harming everybody else. And so they have to set this right. And so Achan is punished. And it seems like everything's good and all. We're moving forward. Well, the next story is also another compare and contrast. Just like Jericho and this other story about Achan was about here's God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. The next story in the book of Joshua is another compare and contrast. So you get these people from a place called Gibeon, the Gibeonites. And they come to worship God. They're seeing how God is moving his people into the area and they're like, hey, we saw the mistake of Jericho. We want to be part of following this God. We want him. We want to be on his side. We want to follow his agenda. And so they come to worship God and it's a wonderful thing. They're like, yes, ha, hallelujah. Man, people from this land are coming to follow this God. Well, not everybody. You see, at the same time when the Gibeonites come to follow God, all the other kings and nations in the area are like, we've got to get rid of these people. They're a parasite. They're invading our area. So all the other kings band together to be this massive army that is coming to destroy and annihilate the Israelites. Think of it like another Lord of the Rings reference. All right, Lord of the Rings, two towers. You get this tiny little band of humans. They're being chased by this massive orc army, and it seems like there's no hope for them. Or think of, if you're a history nut, think of during World War II. And it's before America has entered the war. And Germany is just sweeping across Europe, conquering everything. And they have the last resistance is England. And England, they're small. They don't have the resources to be able to fend off Germany. It looks like they have certain annihilation in their future, right? We should read this with that same tension. Thinking, Joshua, your tiny little band is facing against this massive army. There's no hope for you to win out on this. This seems like you need to throw in the title, towel and get out of Dodge as quickly as you can. But God says something differently to Joshua. God tells him in chapter 10, God tells him, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. See, Joshua's looking at this as this is a terrible threat. And God's like, no, I'm putting this all together because I'm making you the threat to them. You might be small and insignificant and lack the same amount of resources and manpower, but they're going to lose because who's on your side, because of whose side you're on, right? And so this battle goes together. Armies clash together. The battle is just wild and crazy, and the Israelites actually start to win. And this massive horde turns and they try to run away. But we find in verse 11 of chapter 10 that Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, and they died. Uh, And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Once again, that final line shows us that this battle is not really Israel versus the Canaanites. This is God confronting evil and defeating it by an overwhelming force. Now, the next few chapters all talk about the many battles and wars that Joshua had to face to to secure the land. And it ends in chapter 11, where it says, So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. 
So the next few chapters are honestly kind of boring in the book of Joshua. It's boring for our day and age when we read it thousands of years later because what it's talking about is Joshua saying, okay, uh, you, that tribe over there, you get to live in this place and you get to live in this place. And he's kind of dividing up the land. And on our end of things, it's kind of hard to read that and be like, what do I get out of this? But if you read it for what the original audience would have picked up on, what they're seeing is here's God saying, I am fulfilling my promise to Abraham. I'm giving you this promised land. And so this is a cause for joy to read that passage and to be able to see that God is saying, I fulfill my promises, right? Wonderful thing. Well, what happens after this is that Joshua becomes an old man. We get to the end of the book of Joshua. He's won all this victory. He secured the borders. Israel is now in the promised land, but he's old. He was, he's no longer that young man he was when he began this fight. And he's knowing that when he dies, things are going to be changing. He needs to help the people transition. So just like Moses gave his final words, Joshua stands up and he has some final words for the people of Israel. So he gathers them all together and he tells them in chapter 23, he says, now I am, I am about to go the way of all the earth, meaning I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. He's like, you guys are witnesses of God's faithfulness. You guys are witnesses of seeing God fulfill his promise of giving you a home, right? That's wonderful. We can read that with a lot of nostalgia of like, mm, wow, look at this God who has fulfilled his promises. He's been so faithful as his people. have. They've been unfaithful, yet God has remained faithful. God has continued to save them. But then Joshua ends or goes on, he, he says next is something that's kind of like a hard pill to swallow. He says now in verse 15, he says, but just as all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that Yahweh your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he command you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. He's saying, look, God has given you this wonderful blessing because he was faithful. But if you do not commit to listening and loving God, if you do not commit to wanting to be on his side and you make yourself an enemy of God, you make yourself to look like everyone else, then you'll be treated like how everyone else was treated. And so this is a choice that's being presented for them. He's like, you are experiencing the wonderful blessings of God. You can have everything you've always wanted. But if it will remain, if it will remain, then you've got to commit to listening and loving God. Not just giving up on him after you got what you wanted out of him. But living, taking him seriously and continuing to listen to love him. And he goes on to stress this even more. Now in chapter 24, verse 14, some of his final words. He says, Now therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. See, he's presenting a choice for them. 
He's like, you've seen all the other gods that everyone else is worshiping, right? You've seen how uh, what's led to them facing God's wrath. And you have the choice. Are you going to choose God's life? Or are you going to choose the consequences of rejecting God? This is what's presented for them. Now, the people are optimistic. They kind of respond in verse 24. It says, Yahweh, our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Once again, we don't have a whole lot of high hopes in their words, right? They continue to give promises that they cannot keep. And we're going to see that next week in the book of Judges when we dive into that. But for now, we end with the book of Joshua, and it's presenting this big looming question before us. They're asking us to, to really wrestle with, are we the same way? Where are we in this story? Now, before we really dive into that, the one main thing that the book of Joshua is trying to hit on, we need to address some elephants in the room. You see, we in the 21st century, we like to be the New Testament people. We like to be, you know, consider ourselves Jesus followers. And Jesus says to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. So how do we rationalize that with this story of God saying, let's go to battle? Like the two seem to clash with each other. Does that not make you uncomfortable to think, well, how do we, which one do we obey? Which one do we follow? I mean, is this a God who's just, in the Old Testament, he's just an angry God and, and he has a, a mental switch when we come to the New Testament and then he's a God of love? Or is there something, is there a way that these all connect? Well, don't get me wrong. You know, if you feel this way, there's, there's nothing wrong about that. In fact, oftentimes this is what atheists will throw against the church all the time. Oh, I don't want to follow a God who's a violent, angry God. They'll even go so far to say God is racist and that he's all about genocide, right? Because if you read it with a squinting eye look, you can get that impression with the book of Joshua. But that's not what it's about. In order for us to understand what's going on, there's really three questions that we have to really address. Like, number one, why the Canaanites? Why did God tell the Canaanites, hey, you need to get out, right? And tell the Israelites to go and attack them. Well, the Canaanites, this is not the first time they've appeared in the story. They appear starting in the book of Genesis and they appear in every single book and every single one of them, we see this progressive failure on their end of this growing moral decay in them. This is a people group who are known for two things, right? They are known for their sex industry that they have and they're known for their child sacrifices. And then you read the book of Leviticus and Numbers, God says he does not want his people to be part of these things. He says, these things are destroying the good creation that God has made. And he's like, I don't want you to be part of this. So they have to go. But in the examples of Jericho and Rahab and the Gibeonites, we see God first offer mercy and grace. He's saying, look, you are destroying my good creation. That has to be dealt with. I'm going to offer you grace and mercy to change your ways, to come and surrender and follow God. And the same is true for us. When we have our own evils and we see a God who is adamant about confronting evil in this world, the same question is before us. Will we choose life? Will we choose to surrender our evils to God? Or will we hoard them? Will we cling tightly to them? Even when they destroy us and even when they make us an enemy of God. That's what the first question, that's why the Canaanites are being picked here. Number two, a lot of the language of the book of Joshua uses phrases like totally destroyed or left none alive, right? And we read that in a very literal sense of thinking everyone's God. But if you look at the book of Joshua, 
even after these moments happen, and it says God totally destroyed these people, you still see later on in the book of Joshua and in Israel's history that people are still living there. Those people that we thought were totally wiped out, they're still around. And so we have to understand that this is hyperbole. This is the way that the author of Joshua is saying that God won an indisputable victory. There's no doubt that God won this, that, this victory, right? And that's encouraging for us, that God is not a God of genocide, but he is a God of indisputable victory. And that's what's being talked about here. The third thing that's important to understand from this is that this is a limited time in history. God is not still commanding his people, go to war and fight this enemy. And here's the sad thing. The church has used this book for that justification, to attack different people groups who are different than us. Look at the the medieval crusades. A lot of people use the book of Joshua to say, oh, God wants us to destroy any enemy. Our own history as an American people, when the first explorers came to America and they found the Native Americans, they forced them by the point of a sword to submit to Christ. That's not the way we evangelize. And that's not what the book of Joshua is telling us to do. And God would not say that. In fact, you read in the book of Deuteronomy where God tells his people to have peace with the surrounding nations. You look in the book of Exodus and he calls them to be a kingdom of priests. We look in the book of Jeremiah and Daniel when they're being invaded by the Babylonian Empire, the prophets Jeremiah and Daniel are not saying, hey, you need to resist, you need to fight against them, but he tells them to work alongside them, to be able to be people who bless the people who are attacking you. And then we come to Jesus and he says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. So God is not commanding his people, we need to go to war, we need to take up weapons, and we need to attack people. That's not what the book of Joshua is telling us. It's a very limited time in history where we see God pouring out his justice against human wickedness. And God has this habit of allowing human wickedness to bubble up to a point where he finally comes into the scene and deals with it. The cross is an example of that. That's why the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, where God has accumulated the world's sin and evil to be dealt with on the cross. This is what the story of Joshua is telling. It's not saying we need to go to war to fight those who don't believe in in the same God. We're called to a higher standard now, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us. And the book of Joshua is really trying to make this case. When you look at it as a whole, is trying to make us to see God, to take him seriously. And that's really what's going on here, where God's holiness is on display, and we're seeing a God who's a warrior God, a God that we love to see who have action and do all this rescue, like in the book of Exodus. But we're seeing a God who wants to confront evil, who wants to deal with it, who wants to make evil come to an end. This is the God who is demanding us to be taken, for him to be taken seriously, where his holiness must be taken seriously in our lives. Now, we get uncomfortable with that word holiness because we oftentimes think it means morally good behavior. It's funny how often we think words that we don't understand, that we don't use in our language, mean that. Like, we think about that with the word holiness or the word righteousness. We just assume Christianity is all about being morally good people. That's not what holiness means. Holiness is about God's unique and powerful status as the one who gives life. Think of it like the sun. The sun is unique. The sun is powerful. The sun gives life, but it's also dangerous. And that's what God's holiness is like. When God comes, his holiness comes in contact with that which is evil, it's dangerous. 
Now, we love to worship a God who's all of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. That's the God we love to sing about and we love to gather about. But we also must take seriously this other side of God. He's adamant about facing that which is evil, even if it's among his own people, and dealing with it and eradicating it. The story of Achan is an example. Achan is a man who is very common, whose love for money puts him in opposition with God. Oh, he he wants more. He wants to gather up more for himself, and he is worshiping this idol of money. And God has to deal with that. And God's people are, are to take their love of money and bring it under submission of God. To live in a way that the rest of the world can see how we handle money is differently than anyone else because we're bringing it before holy God, who we're taking seriously. The Canaanites, one of their biggest issues, remember, is they had this economy that ran around their sex industry. And in this, we see this God who's adamant about fighting this. And it's the call for us that while we have the same idol of sex in our world, it should be seen differently among God's people, a different narrative, a different way to be human, where we don't follow in the same patterns, but we bring our own idols of sex under a God whose holiness we take seriously. In the Canaanite kings, we saw guys who were adamant about they want to have their own power. They want their own authority. They want their own control. It was their lust for power, something that's very common even in the church. Because believe it or not, people come to church to express their own power, to find power. But God's people are called to a different standard. God's people are called to take their lust of power and bring it before a holy and righteous God that they take seriously and they offer it up to him. That's why humility should be the number one characteristic of who we are. In this narrative, we see a God who wants to fight against these things. And I understand how this is uncomfortable because those three areas are still in every single one of us in our own ways. We each have our own lust for money, lust for sex, and lust for power and control. And so it's a daily battle to constantly be bringing this before God that we say, we take you holy, we take you to to be serious. And we want to have a serious relationship with you. We want to be on your side of things, God. Now please hear me. We still mess this up. And I'm not saying this to make anyone feel uncomfortable or ashamed or anything like that. I'm saying that, that we as Christians are not trying to be morally perfect, but we want to be on God's side of all these things. Because if we fail to take God seriously, his holiness seriously, we we see a breakdown in in who we're supposed to be. For instance, we we start to see that we will only worship this God when we feel like we can get something out of this God. That we'll only pray to this God, that we'll only want to be in relationship with God, we'll only want to open our Bibles if we feel like we can get something from this God rather than saying we want this God in our lives. We want to be on his side of things. If we fail to take this God seriously, then what we'll do is we'll just give our scraps to God. We'll, we'll sit there and think, you know what? I, I earned this paycheck. I can do with it whatever I want. God's got enough. I don't need to give him my gratitude, my thanks. I'm just doing my own thing. If we fail to take God seriously, we'll find ourselves doing that. If we fail to take God and his holiness seriously, we will live lives seeking our own desires rather than live lives that say, I want to seek the first, the kingdom of God. I want to be on his side. I want to see his goodness come into this world. We need to be taking God's 
holiness seriously. It's wonderful to praise God for his love and his grace and mercy. But let's also be people who say, you know what? We worship a holy God, a God who gives life. That's what holiness means. He's the giver of life. And we want to express his life in our own lives. We want to give that message for us individually as well as for this community. Because if we worship a holy God, if we understand who this God is, then it will compel us to be people who will also want to extend God's holiness, to extend his life out into this world where things are dying, where things are suffering. The Bible is full of this. That's why when we come to, for instance, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, it says, There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then the book of 1 Peter says this, it says, as obedient children, meaning as people are saying, I want to listen to God, I want to love God, I want to be on God's side, I want to take him seriously in my life, all right? As those who are obedient children, it says this, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, this God is immensely holy. He's the giver of life. And he wants us to be people who share that life, who represent that life. And the areas where the rest of the world chooses death, we want to choose life. For us as a church, we try to share that message as soon as you walk in. That's why when you walk in, there's a table out there that says prayer requests. There's a little bucket out there. So that way your first impression when you walk in is that this is a praying church. This is a church that believes that God does something when his people gather together to pray, right? We also, as soon as you walk in, you probably see every week, maybe you're forgetting that they're there, there's these change buckets. Where all the change that puts in there, 100% of it goes to some cause that we see that there's injustice, where there's death, and we want to see God's life be brought into those places. So that's why there's SHP on those. Because it's an injustice, it's an area of death where in our town, with all of our resources, there are kids who sleep on the floor when we could do something about that. When we can say, you know, we take God and his holiness seriously, therefore we want to bring more of his holiness into the world. We want to bring more of his life into the world. That's also why when you pull up the awesome bluff app, you see that there's a little prayer wall and things like that. These are the messages we want to bring as God's people that we don't just gather together to sing some songs and go on our own way. We gather together to say we are on God's side and we want to see God's agenda and God's purposes in this world, not our own agenda. That's why Jesus instructs us to play, thy, pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not saying, God, please have my will be done. We pray saying, God, will you be in my life? Will you be with me to work your purposes out in me and around me? so that I can see your holiness in this world as I take it seriously in my own life. Are we going to mess this up? Absolutely. Because we're still sinners. We still have this problem where we still go back to our love of money and sex and power. But just because we're sinners does not mean we adamantly choose to go back sinning. That's the shameful thing. If we know all that God has given us, all his grace and his mercy, and we say, thank you, Jesus, I'm going to go back to doing my thing. Like, thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. Um, I'm going to use this permission is just to keep doing whatever I'm going to do because I know you're going to forgive me. Like, that does not take God seriously. That does not take his holiness seriously. And it shows that we don't really love God if that's our attitude. If we're deliberately going out of our way to say, 
God, thank you. I don't care about anywhere else. I just want to get into the whole heaven thing, right? And so I'm going to go do my own way. Paul in his letter instructs us saying, do not take this for granted what God has done. It's in chapter 6 of the book of Romans where Paul says this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, this is what baptism is all about. It's all about someone declaring, hey, I was going about things my own way and I realized how that was not working. And now I'm turning over a new leaf where I want to follow God's ways and things and I want to make a public announcement to others. That's what we do in baptism. And that's what we want to do as a church every day is to be a kind of people who want to spread God's holiness and life into this world, into a world that's dying, that needs you to love God and love people, that needs you to listen to God. And we want to be that kind of people. That's the commission of the book of Joshua, to take God and his holiness seriously. And that starts with us as individuals. And I recognize that this is uncomfortable. Because like I said, we all have those areas in our lives, those, those sins, those things that we think we can secretly hide that no one will know about, that God's asking, will you surrender it? And maybe this morning you need help with that. Which is why in a little bit when uh, Stephanie and Clayton are back up here to lead us in worship, to sing about how holy our Jesus is, there's going to be men and women in the back of the room if you need to talk to someone. If you're sitting here thinking, man, I have been wrestling with my own addiction to possessions, to money. It's out of control. I want to have God on my side. I want to follow God's direction for this area. I want to bring this area before the cross. I need help with it. We're back here for you. Or maybe it's sin or sex, I mean. And I know that's the thing we want to keep behind closed doors. But your, your habits your entertainment choices, your lust for it, and you find it's destroying something on the inside of you. And you need to talk to someone about that because you want to see the cross be put into that space instead to surrender to God in this area, to be on his side of things. We would love to be able to talk to you and help counsel you through this. Or maybe it's power. Maybe your thing is, man, I, I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to have authority. I want to be heard. And you're realizing now God's saying he wants you to be humble. Not to try to force things your own way. Not to crave power and your own success. But to be a part of his agenda. So that he can be more and we can be less. And if you want to talk to someone about that, we're here for you as well. These are things that God is still confronting in our lives. And you're not alone in that. But if you need someone, we're here for you. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for, for being a God who, who's a warrior, who wants to fight our battles, even if we are the battlefield. Father, I thank you so much that in all of our pain that we tend to cause you, you don't give up on us. 
But even when your own people choose to chase after our own idols of money and sex and power, just like the, the Canaanites did, just like your own people do that we see in the book of Joshua, you are still adamant about winning this battle. And Father, we want to take you seriously. We want to take your holiness seriously. We, we worship you that you are a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. We love these things about you. But God, I know from my own experience that if that's all that we talk about, it makes it so that we abuse you. We only come to you when we need something from you. We put you in a tiny little box that we feel like we can control you and keep you from speaking to the rest of our lives until everything falls apart and then we come back to you. But Father, you're calling us to to be your hands and feet. You're calling us to be your royal priesthood as obedient children. You're calling us to be a part of your agenda. You're inviting us into your story. You've rescued us, not so that you could be on our side, but you've rescued us so that we can be invited to be on your side of things. So Father, we want to be people who will seek first your kingdom above all things. We want to be people who take your holiness seriously. We want to be people where we can look at the areas of our lives that death reigns and we can say, the cross speaks into this place and I will surrender to the cross first and foremost. And the one who's on that cross of Jesus. And we want to be people who will go out of here loving God and loving people to go into the areas where there is still death around us in the community and to proclaim a new message. To proclaim the opportunity for us to come and to follow you, to see your will be done in these areas, Father. As we take it seriously first in our own lives and then carry it forward into into our families, into our workplaces, among the people that we interact with. Help us to be that kind of people. Help us to be that kind of people with this kind of message as we get just to spectate you go at war against the evil in our lives, Father. As in your name I pray. Amen.